Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another Mad Scientist podcast. This episode, I need to start off by announcing a really exciting new contest that the show will be doing each month. We're calling it the Be a Mad Scientist Challenge, and it'll be running pretty much from now until eternity, or at least until I stop thinking of ideas. One really interesting question I always get asked by listeners is how do I get involved in science if I am not academically trained? And the answer I always give is that anyone can be a scientist or think scientifically by reading books, learning about your local wildlife and plants, getting a telescope and looking at the stars, watching YouTube videos, or listening to podcasts like this one to learn some stuff about modern science. And literally anyone can think creatively about new inventions and ideas to make the world a better place. I mean, some of the science that we are working on now started in the inventions of science fiction writers or movies and TV shows that future scientists watched as kids. At its core, Science is not all about academics and studying, but a lot of science is about thinking up creative designs and ideas. And it is one of the hardest things to teach undergraduate students who are thinking of making the transition to graduate research or even into industry. So this challenge each month is meant to try and make you, the listeners, more excited about thinking up new inventions and designs, and being scientifically minded and oriented at home, even if you don't have access to a lab or a bunch of chemicals or any other sciencey stuff. So each month, listeners can submit ideas through Twitter, Facebook, or our podcast email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com, all one word, for their answer or idea to solve the problem or question we will pose at the end of the roundtable at the end of the previous month. We will then look through the ideas, and the most interesting and creative will be selected to be discussed on air by Marie and I in a roundtable, with a full, or at least semi-full, scientific and historical background discussed on the idea and how feasible the solution given is. The winner will also receive a one-of-a-kind, hand-drawn congratulations doodle and thank you note, a sticker of the show's logo, and a special sticker specifically made for challenge winners that you can't get anywhere else. Their submitted design email will also be immortalized on the website for the show. This month, we're going to start a little early, to give people some extra time. So we always see fighter ships with laser beams on spacecraft in shows like Star Trek or movies like Star Wars. But why do we only see lasers? What other sorts of defensive or offensive capabilities can you dream up for the USS Science? The Starfighter, I am assured Marie and her family are busy at work on in their backyard. Send in your designs, as complicated or as simple as you think you would like them to be, with doodles or without, to the show through email or through Twitter and Facebook, by the middle of this month of June. And we will have a winner announced on the final roundtable of the month. Good luck. And I can't tell you how excited I am to see some of the answers people give me here. Okay, now for science business. Last episode, we talked about climate change science and its development over time. We dealt with one of the silliest arguments out there, that the carbon we release is nothing compared to a single volcanic eruption. Talked about what it means to be a greenhouse gas, how an equilibrium system works and what it means to fall out of equilibrium, and finally came to just how much carbon we release and where it comes from. So if you missed any of that stuff, or are just joining the show now, I highly suggest you jump back a full episode and check part one of this story. This week, we'll discuss the history of climate change denial, how it started, who funded it, and how it's come back to bite some of the same groups in the ass. And in the last half of the episode, we'll go into some specific arguments against climate change, to give you some ammo for your next family dinner with your weird uncle who smells like gunpowder. 
Welcome to the Mad Scientist Podcast, episode 21, Climate Change Denial. As stated in the ending of last episode, some of the biggest driving forces against this idea of climate change being caused by air pollution, and specifically the release of greenhouse gases, such as carbon dioxide, started with the coal industry. So from the time of Foyer, Tyndall, and Arrhenius in the 1840s to 1890s, we saw that global warming could happen, but it wasn't until 1938 that Calendar saw that it actually was happening. He basically measured land temperatures and found that there was an increase in temperatures over the 50 years or so before his work was published, and suggested that this was due to increased carbon dioxide since the Industrial Revolution. His work was initially met with some skepticism, but eventually further research and papers published by him and his lab showed further proof of these increased temperature changes. The work of Ravel et al. further suggested the need to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Their paper on ocean adsorption of excess carbon dioxide showed that the growth rate of atmospheric CO2 would be much higher than previously expected. They proposed that the ocean would not be able to simply absorb the excess CO2 to rebalance the atmospheric equilibrium. This was due to what is now known as the Ravel effect, where carbon dioxide must first get through a carbon dioxide-rich layer of water that significantly slows down absorption rates. So you can kind of think of it as you have CO2 absorbing into the water, and the reason that it absorbs is because the water is CO2-free, but the air is CO2-rich. Well, as CO2 gets absorbed into the water, the top layer is going to be more CO2-rich than the bottom layers, and since it takes some time for CO2 to diffuse down through the water, the adsorption rate at the surface will slow down. These works then led to further research by the scientific community, resulting in the Charney Report in 1979, which found for the first time agreement among scientists that a doubling of CO2 would lead to a temperature increase of near 3 degrees Celsius, with an error of plus or minus 1.5 degrees. And for my American listeners, a change of 3 degrees Celsius is equivalent approximately to about 10 to 15 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's pretty significant. Although the change in degrees Celsius to Fahrenheit is actually a much more complicated function than just a simple linear change, but still, it's, it's a big change. Okay, so science got itself together and said something was happening, and we better figure it out. And this scientific consensus started around the 1980s. So where is climate change denial in the modern world up to today? Like, what happened in the 1980s that climate denial became kind of a political thing and not so much a scientific thing? Well, I've sort of been trying to dance around the topic, but frankly, climate change denial has been centered in the right wing of the American political landscape, with really no serious scientific arguments against climate change being lobbied in recent times by pretty much anyone else, and no other country or group of politicians or people having any doubt about climate change's existence. In that way, the United States is sort of like the weird kid in class whose parents never told him where babies came from, still innocent and pure, and talking about how gross it is that babies come out of someone's ass. The first politician to really make climate science a political issue was Ronald Reagan. His administration argued consistently that climate change was not occurring, and that the reports coming out of the EPA and other environmental organizations were overblown or alarmist despite evidence to the contrary, such as significant droughts and heat waves already occurring at that time. This politicization led to books and arguments in the public sphere, 
With one particularly famous climate denial book, Carbon Dioxide, Friend or Foe, by Sherwood B. Idso, coming out and arguing that in fact rising CO2 might be better for the planet and humans, since it meant that more plants would be better fertilized. Basically, he has made a career of arguing that since climate change effects on the planet are very complicated, that the alarming arguments made by most people are ill-founded, since we really can't predict long-term changes in temperature or weather with any accuracy. And although that is a compelling-sounding argument, to ignore the very basic science that increased CO2 leads to increased temperature in the atmosphere is willful ignorance in my estimation. Anyways, public perception of climate change as a real threat started heating up, pun intended, around the 1990s due to significant droughts and heat waves as I said, which were some of the first instances of climate change caused weather events that we had been anticipating for quite some time, at least since the time of Arrhenius. At the same time, scientists began reporting that since we could anticipate higher temperatures in the atmosphere, and since temperature is directly related to the average kinetic energy available for things like pressure drops and resulting storms, that we could expect more extreme weather in the near future as well. That, along with the pretty much set scientific consensus, then caused those industries that put out loads of carbon dioxide to begin a very successful propaganda campaign. So the current view of why these climate change denial groups or scientists really started to take hold is quite interesting. First off, there is strong evidence to suggest that the fossil fuel industries utilized arguments and tactics used previously by the tobacco industry, despite the fact that as early as the 1970s, they knew that climate change was in fact occurring and was a real problem, and actually started to do research onto how to stop it around that time. In fact, some of the same scientists used to spread doubt about tobacco's effects on cancer rates were also used to sow doubt about climate change science. The idea of these arguments goes something like this. First, you attack the very idea of the science itself, claiming that it is not possible to measure these things, or that more study is needed, or that there is no scientific consensus. Next, you argue that the effects projected are not as problematic as supported, or that they cannot possibly project out to a large-scale system, or again that the baseline data collection methods are faulty. And finally, when attacking the science becomes impossible, you begin arguing that the effects caused by your product, in this case fossil fuels, are minuscule or negligible, and that therefore it is not your responsibility or problem that these things are starting to happen, or that, frankly, government has no role or no right to start to change people's opinions or views on this sort of thing. Interestingly as well, the move towards green energy goals and environmental protections gained a lot of support from conservative groups as opposed to just pro-business groups arguing that the green energy mission was anti-free trade or represented the encroachment of globalist policies and ideas onto the American people. And those arguments continue today, with people stating that it's unfair, for example, for America to try and impose green energy standards on countries like China and India, while those countries are readily adapting to green energy methods in order to outcompete us. And that, therefore, since we can't force them, we should not force our own companies to make the same shift. Again, ignoring the fact that companies in China and India are already making the shift because it makes sense economically. These arguments are often subtle and they may seem compelling at first. But ultimately, they fall apart if you take a real economic analysis of the current state of things. I mean, look, regardless of whether or not climate change is happening, oil and gas are currently used as bargaining chips around the world for power and importance. 
and are used in that way specifically because there is a very finite amount of these important resources. So it would make sense, one would think, for those without oil and gas to remove the bargaining chip from the table by moving to resources that are freely available and accessible to all, such as solar power or wind. I mean, isn't this a much more free market solution to the problem of energy? A decentralized and individual marketplace where people themselves can gather energy for their homes by setting up local solar panels or wind turbines? And again, these resources currently used are limited, so wouldn't it make sense for the United States to jump ahead of this problem by providing for research into renewable energy systems just as a matter of pure selfish interest, even if not for the good of the environment? Anyways, these arguments sort of have gone back and forth over time until today, and the vast majority of the arguments against climate science come from a small group of dedicated pro-fossil fuel and often fossil fuel industry-funded groups, who again use tobacco industry rhetorical methods, as I said. And when I say fossil fuel industry, this isn't to say that the companies producing fossil fuels or scientific research don't know that there is a problem. Merely that for a given period of time, they were trying to maximize the lifetime of their products, which they knew was inevitably short. So it's pretty crazy from the standpoint of these industries that today have scientists trying to do a lot of good. I mean, the vast majority of funding for climate change research comes from the government, but a huge chunk of it also comes from companies like Exxon or, you know, Shell or just different oil companies in general, right? And so that's what I mean by these companies now are kind of getting bitten in the ass by their previous, I don't know, campaign to discredit this science or show that it was alarmist. I mean, in the short term, back in the 1970s, I suppose it made sense to argue that climate change wasn't happening or it wasn't that big of a deal at, you know, back then. But to look at it from today's standpoint, I wonder if they would have done things differently. I wonder if they wouldn't have just started to kind of begin investigating and looking at these problems and potential solutions such as green energy or solar panels and gotten ahead of the curve, so to speak. Anyways. Over 90% of the reports or papers claiming to debunk or argue against climate science are from right-wing think tanks, with people within the fossil fuel lobby being the primary donors for this sort of attack on climate science. It's seriously the exact same thing we saw with Morgellons disease and you see with almost every conspiracy theory, with the only papers even remotely claiming it's real coming from the same few people being paid by the same groups in order to trick you into giving them more money. And in this case, some of the groups have even shiftier and less obvious names than in the case of Morgellons. If you, however, see evidence against climate change coming from places like the Heritage Foundation or the Independent Institute, check where their funding comes from. In many cases, the money is coming from the fossil fuel industry, or think tanks connected to it. ExxonMobil has in fact been notorious in this realm, which is really quite sad, again, given a lot of the very good work their scientists are doing to fight global warming with developments in new materials and methods to capture the gas. They support many climate skeptic groups, including the George C. Marshall Institute with a fat check for $630,000, $427,000 to the Board of Academic and Scientific Advisors for the Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow, and the Independent Institute at various times. In fact, a paper by Brule et al. published in the Journal of Climatic Change found that the climate change counter-movement in the United States accounts for nearly $900 million of income each year, with each individual group or think tank 
fighting climate change, obtaining nearly $64 million a year in donations, the vast majority of which come from conservative groups. So climate change has become a significantly political thing, and one that has really brought in a huge amount of money for the corporations and groups fighting against climate science. Even though, as I've stated and can't state enough, many within the fossil fuel industry are scientists literally being paid to research climate change and methods to combat it. The risks have been significantly undercut through lobbying and money put in by some of these same groups. It's sort of a weird story again, where the fossil fuel industry knows it's a problem, but doesn't want to have to deal with the issue at the moment, and so delays the issue by sowing doubt. I think probably the best quote about this comes from David Michael's book, Doubt is Their Product, about how industry attempts to create public misconceptions about science to help their own bottom line. The quote supposedly comes from someone working in the cigarette industry, and it goes like this, quote, Doubt is our product, since it is the best means of competing with the body of fact that exists in the minds of the general public. It is also the means of establishing a controversy, end quote. And I'll tell you what, they've done a great job at sowing doubt in this case. Like we said in the first episode, the majority of the public has no idea about the consensus on climate change among scientists. I think my favorite quote from this comes from Rush Holt, whose piece in the journal Science on This is a required reading on the topic of science denialism in the United States. The quote is as follows, quote, For more than two decades, scientists have been issuing warnings that the release of greenhouse gases, principally carbon dioxide, is probably altering Earth's climate in ways that will be expensive and even deadly. The American public yawned and bought bigger cars. Statements by the American Association for the Advancement of Science, American Geophysical Union, American Meteorological Society, and others underscored the warnings and called for new government policies to deal with climate change. Politicians, presented with noisy statistics, shrugged, said there is too much doubt among scientists, and did nothing. End quote. And, unfortunately, that is kind of where we still are at. People want to do something about climate change. In fact, the most recent polling shows that 48% of the public believes in human-caused climate change, and 61% said they expect to need to make major changes to their lifestyles to address climate change in the future. But 20% still believe there is no evidence for climate change, and 31% think it is being caused by natural forces that we can't control. It's pretty scary stuff. I mean, the majority of people don't think climate change is caused by humans, despite all evidence to the contrary. And so it makes you wonder, do we need to change our messaging? Would it be better to talk about other pollution first, and then gently discuss climate change with them? One thing in my work we've tried to do is make the case that even if you don't believe carbon dioxide is bad for the environment, we're currently just throwing it away, which is a huge waste when it may be able to be turned into a sellable commodity like ethanol or acetic acid. But even that argument is stifled sometimes, with some taking anti-environmentalism to be a necessary component of their political views. I mean, I recently read about a new phenomena where people roll coal with their trucks, a process where they purposely make their car belch black soot and ash in order to annoy people. It's so comically stupid and bad for your car, besides being bad for the planet you live on, that it makes you wonder what other kinds of stuff they do to very slightly inconvenience someone. It's like pissing your pants in a restaurant because you don't like your server. Sure, it's going to annoy them, but now you got to walk home sopping wet and stinking like a train station. So all right, 
The vast majority of scientists agree that global warming is caused by increased carbon dioxide levels and that it's currently happening. And the majority of the arguments against this view appear to come from people for whom climate change likely means a big drop in sales and money. So what are some of the arguments out there for why climate change isn't happening? Or we shouldn't trust the science? Or what else do people think is going on? Well, some of the wackiest versions of the climate change denial story include huge government conspiracies, chemtrails and nanopoisons, and evil scientists with names like Dr. Cogswell, trying to trick people with mass media and things like podcasts into believing the lie of big environment. But there are more serious arguments as well out there. One we've already touched on is the idea that climate data is not accurate, or at least not accurate enough to show that man-made climate change is a real phenomena. This is often encapsulated in the hockey stick argument, that the famous graph showing the sharp rise in climate carbon and temperature together is not accurate because of problems in measurement of past and current data. First off, what is the hockey stick graph? It's a famous climate graphic showing a curve of temperature going slightly down at first for the last thousand years, followed by a sharp uptick in temperature around the 1900s, making something like a hockey stick shape. The graph comes from a paper by Mann, Bradley, and Hughes, published in 1999, which used a pretty complicated mathematical regression method to obtain underlying temperature data and trends from proxy variables. So for example, we can't know exactly what the average temperature was a thousand years ago, since we weren't measuring temperatures back then. However, we have a lot of proxy data that is related to the temperature of that period. For example, tree ring spacing can tell us how humid or dry our particular growing season was. Ice core compositions can tell us how much atmospheric CO2 existed in that particular year, since the number of layers here gives an idea of age, and the composition of the ice itself can still be figured out by just dissolving the ice and running it through different analysis techniques. And the thickness of the ice cores themselves can also let us know how much melting and refreezing occurred in a particularly hot and cold season for a glacial area. So by making a few assumptions, we can theoretically use these proxy data as a means to obtain temperature data for a given year in the past, with more proxy data for a particular time, meaning better overall accuracy to the prediction and better models and fits of current trends for periods where we have had temperature data recorded alongside these proxies, making for better predictions in general. The assumptions that they make are laid out pretty clearly in the original paper by Mann et al. on this work. They say, quote, The calibration procedure invokes the assumption, one, that a linear relationship exists between proxy climate indicators and some combination of large-scale temperature patterns, and two, that patterns of surface temperature in the past can be suitably described in terms of some linear combination of the dominant present-day surface temperature patterns, end quote. In other words, that these proxies indicate some linear relationship to temperature changes, and that the overall pattern of surface temperature is equivalent to some function of all of these proxies put together. I realize that this is quite a difficult concept here, and a lot of you are probably like eating lunch or jogging in the morning, and you're just like, you know, I don't have time for this proxy stupid data crap. Give me the news, Cogswell. So I want to make an analogy to a more simple scenario. Imagine that we wanted to model household income, but we didn't have access to people's bank accounts or paychecks. 
Well, we could use a number of proxy variables to tell their income relative to the average income. So for example, we could use the cost and number of cars they own. We could use the amount of vacation time that they take off. We could use their grocery bills and amount of spent on luxury goods. And we could look at their job and the amount of property that they own. So in making our model, we put these variables that are not exactly the money that they make, but are related to the amount of money they make together in the most simple function first, where each of these variables is additive. In other words, total income is equal to some combination of the cost of the car, plus the cost of the vacation days, plus the cost of their property, etc. Now, not all of these proxy variables we chose at the beginning may be completely useful or indicative. So in order to test our model, we will use data from sets that we do have available to make what are known as calibrations of the model. So we look at current data, and maybe we see that the number of vacation days is not really that indicative of the average income that someone has, while the cost of cars is a very good variable for this indicator. So now maybe we turn our model into something like income is equal to one times the cost of vacation days, plus five times the cost of their car. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. So now our model has changed, and it's gotten better to fit the data. And as we keep improving our data sets and our calibrations, we keep getting closer to something that is predictive or useful. In order for them to calibrate models like this, they have to leave out data sets for testing in order to get to the most accurate and predictive model that they can. And these models are constantly updated with more research and data, including more proxy variables and information, in order to come to a more complete and thorough understanding of the type of modeling we can do with any sort of accuracy. So eventually, through multiple rounds of modeling and testing of proxy variables and calibrating, you will end up with a robust model that is predictive able to include all of the data as it currently exists, and which shows a relatively low margin of error in their predictions. This is the way that these models are built on proxy variables. And frankly, it's the same way as most mathematical models of complex situations are built up. And the real proof of the method's utility is that other scientists using other proxy variables and different methodologies and data sets all come to the same striking conclusions. Namely, that temperatures have increased sharply in the last couple of decades, alongside an increase in CO2 levels. This is, in my estimation, the best argument 
against that common attack on climate science, that the models or methods are not accurate enough to predict increases in temperature with any sort of accuracy. Well, while a single model may not be a very accurate or good depiction of the way that the world works, how do we account for the preponderance of models which have come out since that first publication, all of which have come to the same conclusions pretty much, and all of which pass the same scientific and statistical rigor than any other mathematical model does? Other versions of this argument is that the data itself used for proxy variables are not accurate, for example, ice core measurements or tree ring data. And while these have some merit in the sense that no data is accurate all of the time, one would have to start disputing all scientific studies that utilize this data, which would mean a pretty huge swath of geology, archaeology, ecology, various biological models and ideas. I mean, just a truly phenomenal amount of stuff, which all works within their own compartmentalized fields, as well as in the larger picture of scientific research. Another version of the argument against modeling climate change is that we aren't including proxy variables that matter. For instance, sunspots or solar flare variations. But there is literally no evidence of this being the case, and even if solar flares were causing huge increases in global temperatures, this only works within the realm of climate change. I mean, to assume that solar flares are increasing our temperatures, don't you need to think that temperature has something to do with the amount of energy released from the sun and trapped here on Earth? the very argument at the heart of lowering carbon dioxide emissions, which necessarily trap heat here on Earth? Another version of this is that it is natural fluctuations that cause climate change. Something, again, that goes out the window when we argue that, yes, of course there are natural fluctuations caused by carbon dioxide emissions in the atmosphere, but we are far out of equilibrium since we are not pumping too much of the stuff into the atmosphere. In arguing that natural changes are like proof that climate change isn't happening as part of an argument that our models predicting climate change aren't true is silly because how do we know that those natural fluctuations occurred by using the same exact models? So the scientific attacks on climate science are pretty weak in reality. They are forced to try and make indefensible claims, things that when taken to their natural conclusions don't make logical sense or actually further support the climate change argument as it currently stands. Or they argue things that, when put into the larger context of the global energy economy, don't really stand up to pressure. Because again, regardless of whether or not global warming is really happening, why would a country want to continue to utilize energy sources that we buy from other countries when it would be feasible and much better for us politically, economically, and strategically to generate all of our own energy here? Well, now that just leaves us with the good stuff. The real hard-hitting facts of the matter. The stuff they don't want you to know about. The kind of true journalism you can only get on websites that sell sugar pills as supplements. The information your crazy uncle rants about at the Thanksgiving table after a few too many bottles of cores. Conspiracy theories! One of the most common and popular conspiracy theories about global warming is that it is a myth being perpetuated by the New World Order, the globalists, the lizard people, you know, the ever-present and always threatening them. First off, before we get into this, I just want to say, like, the argument that globalists or the global elite are controlling the world is just a kind of sort of whitewashed version of the attack on Jews during and after World War II. Like, the argument was that the global Jewish elite controlled the world, but now they think that we're too stupid to remember that there used to be a word between global and elite. 
All right, I, I digress. Anyways, why we're making a global warming or trying to pressure people into taking on green energy things is sort of all over the place online. Like, no one can really accept or come to some standard view of the conspiracy. Some people argue that they're doing it so that they can enact stricter controls in our daily lives. I guess in the sense that forcing American industries to accept these worldwide climate accords and regulations means that we are being controlled by one large group of world control. But like, why? Wouldn't it make more sense for a secret world government or cabal to control access to a limited but extremely important resource that literally makes the world run, causing wars to be fought, regions to be controlled, and talking heads to spew propaganda to keep us doing something that hurts the environment and ourselves, but helps the global elite who profit from our use of this limited resource? As opposed to, like, the global elite forcing us to switch to an unlimited, freely available source of energy, taking away the control from a group of small individuals, and instead making energy a pretty much uncontrollable and freely accessible commodity? Am I being too on the nose here, people? This conspiracy doesn't make any damn sense. Another version of this one is that they are doing it so they can slowly poison us with stuff like chemtrails. Even though, again, there are a billion much better and more deceptive ways to poison a population than using a flashy and easily tracked method, like creating big old lines in the sky of poison. The argument here is that they are over time making us believe that there is a good reason for government to be spraying out things with scary sounding names like nanoparticles and cloud seeding technologies to control the weather. While in reality, they are merely spreading this stuff to poison the U.S. population. Now, what they're poisoning us with here is up for debate, of course. And why would they need to poison us via cloud dispersion again when they literally have control of everything we eat and drink through agencies like the FDA and public water systems is anyone's guess. A similar version of this is that global warming is a myth to pull us away from fossil fuels in lieu of nuclear energy. Although, again, like, what? Why would making arguments for environmental damage make us move towards an energy system that, frankly, I love, but which most people think will cause us to mutate into giant frog monsters? It just doesn't, again, make any logical sense when you connect all the dots together. One version of this conspiracy that seems to be more popular in the United States than in other places is the idea that global warming can't possibly be happening because God wouldn't have created a world that is imperfect. It's a sort of interesting argument, frankly, one that you would think would, if anything, cause these people to question their faith, as opposed to taking it as a matter of principle that all evidence to the contrary is an attack by the devil or something. But if anything, these religious beliefs lead to all sort of very interesting takes on climate change and what it means in the lens of their faith. These statistics are from a study by the Yale University Program on Climate Change Communication. One in seven U.S. adults think that God controls the climate, and therefore climate change cannot be occurring. 14% of those polled think that if climate change is occurring, it is a sign of the imminent return of Jesus Christ as part of the apocalypse. Of those, 11% think that because the end times are coming, we don't need to worry about the climate or our effect on the planet, since it's going to be the problem of the sinners soon anyways. A 9% polled thought that the end times were going to happen in their lifetime. It's a startling thing to imagine people may be willfully ignoring these problems and challenges because of their religious beliefs, but it is a real fact of the matter when it comes to this issue, one that I think we often sidestep. It's a very problematic thing about this argument, 
and something, frankly, that I think religious leaders should be doing more to argue against. I mean, I am not religious now for a variety of personal reasons, but the people that help me write this show and work on it are religious, or at least some of them are. And as a child growing up Catholic, I still retain a lot of the same morals and ideas that I kind of got back in Sunday school. So I was taught that God gave the earth to humans, and so we must steward and protect this planet. Not that God would simply solve our problems or stop bad things from happening to us, but rather that when bad things happen, they were a test of our resolve and the goodness of our morals and intentions. And that how we respond to bad things happening is the true measure of a good person. I mean, I'm not trying to get too preachy here, but the underlying message of these beliefs are really interesting, right? I mean, other bad things happen related to the climate. Every year we see tornadoes, flash floods, hail the size of baseballs, all kinds of crazy stuff. So why would a slower change in climate be any different than these other bad climate shifts that we just call weather? Why disbelieve in slow climate change versus quick climate changes? All right. This series has been somewhat depressing, I think, for a lot of listeners. And I gotta say, I personally am hopeful about the climate change problem and how we're going to solve it in the next coming decades. Like I said, my research was on capturing carbon dioxide from the upper atmosphere. And I can tell you that there are a lot of really good, really smart people working on this problem right now. There are a lot of very creative and interesting solutions to this issue. And honestly, The public supporting these research efforts and coming out and saying that we believe in climate change and we want to do something about it really does help. So if you're listening to this and I happen to have convinced you, I'm very thankful that you listened to this show. And even if I didn't convince you, I'm glad that you at least took the time to hear out the other side. So I do think that climate change will be solved in our lifetimes. I think it's going to take some doing, and I think there might be periods where things do get pretty bad. But honestly, anyone telling you that the ocean will swallow us up or that all of our biodiversity will be lost within 20 years are being just a little bit over alarmist, I think. Things are going to be bad. And who knows? They could get as bad as that. But we're already seeing negative effects of climate change. Things that we could be arguing for to real people to tell them, look, look at how this is occurring. If you go to your supermarket right now and try to buy North Atlantic cod, I bet you can't. And the reason is that North Atlantic cod spawning is down to nearly 0%. The North Atlantic cod is almost going extinct. They're not making enough fish that we can actually catch them sustainably anymore. And so all the cod you buy in your restaurants or supermarkets are coming from the Pacific now. We're also starting to see autumns being slightly longer and starting slightly earlier. Although again, that's only going to be good for a couple of years before all of those trees start to die because they can't sustain the higher temperatures. And we're seeing things like biodiversity being lost in different areas. So there are real challenges here. But I would argue that we should be pointing to these currently occurring issues and not to these long-term alarmist things that maybe turn people off. Point to something that's really affecting their lives today, and I think you can convince people much more readily. Although again, these big changes and challenges are going to happen if we don't do something soon. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode. I thank you all for listening, and hope you decide to reach out to the show on Twitter, Facebook, you decide to support us on Patreon, 
give us a review on Audioboom or iTunes, or send in questions and comments via email. We are hoping to ramp up production quality now with the move to Audioboom, as well as get set on a more regular schedule of releasing on Wednesdays. And don't forget to join our Be a Mad Scientist Challenge. I really am excited to see some of the stuff people send us. This week's music comes from The Living Room Leftists, a band out of Memphis, Tennessee with one of my friends from UNH, Taylor Ransom, and his bandmates Mike Butler and Chris Luchibella. When they heard I was doing a podcast with music, they sent me along some of their stuff that they had recorded in their living room, and I seriously fell in love. And now with some more legitimate recordings, I am very pleased to have their music on the show. Their album is called Office Hours, and you can find it on Bandcamp at livingroomleftists.bandcamp.com. And leftists here is spelled L-E-F-T-I-S-T-S. And of course, you can find links to their music in the show notes. I had a really hard time picking a song from their album for this one, since they're all really good, and a few are about scientific equipment like functional magnetic resonance imaging machines, and some have concepts like the mathematical description of nature. And I highly suggest you go check out those other songs as well. This song is called Things Our Parents Made, once again from the Living Room Leftists. Thank you again for listening.
I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.